Med Family is a show about a family journeying through medical school with kids and navigating married life. Tag along to see how we got here and where this journey is taking us. Hello, welcome to another week of our podcast, Med Family. I'm Eric Acker, the host, with my lovely wife, Karen. Hey, guys. So this week we are on our wards on 8 South, so we've been a little bit busy, but today is our, our day off, so we've been... We've been enjoying it as much as we can. Uh, you know, kicking the day off with uh, trimming a tree rack and getting the lawnmower out and charging the lawnmower battery. <laughs> <laughs> Very exciting stuff. <laughs> yeah, today we didn't do an adventure with the kids. Instead, we did at home movie night, which the kids very much enjoyed, and then we're very sad that we were not doing it tomorrow night and protested going to bed. So yeah, The bed- bedtime routine was just as painful as it always is. Um, <laughs> well, it's a, you know, they send the kids to the bedrooms, and they, they have a little mini fights, and they come out crying, and they come back into bed, and usually the one who's crying in our situation is the, the one, one who instigated. It. Like he, he likes to pick pick fights with his older brother, and then when he gets slapped down or he doesn't come out on top on his fight, like he comes out crying because he knows the ultimate trump card is mom and dad scolding <laughs> the older <laughs> one for making the younger one cry. And so it's a, it's a fun little nighttime routine. It's a, And there's, of course, one of the kids that will play in the toilet. That's always a fan, a fan favorite there. No. Not at all. <laughs> I mean, most of the time, it's it's fun. I mean, like most of today, um, I Nora helped me do the lawn mow. I, I was mowing the lawn, and she sat with me while I mowed the lawn, and I think she really enjoyed it. I would honestly, I would think that they would get like bored after like the first half of the lawn, and usually I give them the opportunity, like you, if you if you're done, you're okay, and he's like, no, let's keep going. It's like okay, I don't I don't know why just like, sitting on the lawn mower is super fun, but we'll do it. Um, so they, they enjoy that. And then I was cleaning up the car a little bit. It's a almost weekly tradition of cleaning out the entirely messy car because the kids somehow find a way to make the car just filthy. Um, <laughs> and then they kept kind of coming up and chatting with me and trying to, trying to see what I was doing. I think the oldest wanted to build a robot with my tools. Which he keeps wanting to build a robot. He has a robot. I'm looking at it, but yeah. <laughs> that was that was something pre uh, start uh, pre, pre uh, wards. Yeah, yeah. Eric and Oliver sat upstairs for a good two days almost. Yeah, and built built a robot. Yeah, and now it's just sitting up it, here. It's a good idea. I just think that he needs to learn how to read more, and then he can really take off with this. Like, it's like one of those robots you have to, you build, but then in order to really work it, it has like a a programming function. You get on the iPad and basically like program a bunch of functions, and it will do it. And it's kind of cool. Like it has some pre-programmed functions, but like it can be pretty cool what it can do. But like it's not something I can just hand him the iPad and say. Go go to town because he doesn't really understand. He doesn't really read very well. So it's something that we're we're working on. As soon as he gets there, I'm sure he'll have a lot more fun with it. Yes, he has no motivation with that. Math, all for it. 
Reading, not so much. And it's a little bit hard for me, because like, I could probably try to program something on the robot, but I would have to spend a, a little bit of time trying to figure out which programs I want to use and run, and I just don't have the time to do that on my own. So the robot sits up here because he is fragile. He's like made out of connectics. Like connect, yeah. uh, connect. Like I don't know if you ever played with connects as a kid. No, but oh, yeah, okay. it basically connects. Anyway, uh, this is an audio platform. And <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, the wards have been fun. Um, there are some good days and there are bad days. There are days I get home uh, enough time to play some games with the kids, and there are some days we just send the kids to bed, and I try to say goodnight to them when I get home. <laughs> and then we repeat it. So we have this for three more weeks, no. this week and next week. Yeah. Um, three weeks total. I'm done with one, week one, and we are on to week two. I, I've apparently dodged the bullet, though, because we switch attendings. Attendings go basically um, Tuesday to Tuesday, or Tuesday to Monday. And so the attending I had last week ended yesterday, and then I, a new attending started today. But apparently, like, when the new attendings come on, it's that all the patients are brand new to them. And so you can't really get away with your presentations with, oh, yeah, this is the patient who has, <laughs> you can't, like, briefly summarize. You really have to give, like, the entire hospital course on some of these summaries. And that can be very, um, I don't know, nerve-wracking because it's like you already know a lot of the stuff. You already, you've already done it. And, but now you have to dig through and make sure when, what you're saying is exactly accurate. And you can't just summarize it. You can't just be like, yeah, you know, the patient came in, DKA, you know, glucose was high, anion gap was, you know, elevated, and we, uh, we put them on insulin transfusion, and then they came off. Like, you can't just summarize it like that. You kind of have to say, like, what was the glucose they came in at? What was the anion gap? What was the bicarb? And then when they put the patient on the infusion, how long did they stay on the infusion? When did the anion gap close? When did, which basically means it's low enough, you don't need to worry about. And like also something that I kind of a pro tip to kind of keep in the back of your head is like, okay, you, what you, you do the insulin drip until the anion gap closes, but you should still kind of keep an eyeball on the bicarb or and this is something this is annoying um so some hospitals will do what's on when you look at the bmp you'll see co2 instead of bicarb which is bicarb it's hco3 which is the bicarb and so a lot of hospitals will do co2 and so a lot of times i i would honestly i'm only a little embarrassed to admit this but all through like third and fourth year, I'm pretty sure Houston Hospital did CO2. And so I just looked at it and was like, I have no idea what, you know, like in my mind, I'm thinking of the values you get from a VBG or a venous blood gas. And so I'm just like, I don't, I'm not, I'm not doing that. Like, I, I don't know why we're talking about CO2 in the metabol the basic metabolic panel. And I'd always be frustrated. I'm looking for a bicarb, but I don't see one. I just found out looking it up that, there's a really tight correlation between CO2 and bicarb that the values are essentially the same. So a lot of labs will just do the CO2 and that's, that's good enough. And you can basically just in your head think that that's the bicarb and it's actually not inaccurate. So that's what I read. So I'm, <laughs> that's what, and everyone seems to be good doing it. So, but anyway, the, the, the pro tip there was once the anion gap is closed, 
to still look at the bicarb because the bicarb is just telling you so uh, bi- diabetic ketoacidosis essentially is a very acidic situation in your body and the acidic you know where your body's making ketones keto ketonic acid and so acidic situations in your body make your cells more insulin resistant so even though you might have cleared the anion gap if the bicarb is low it means the acid level might be still a little high so the ph of your, your system might be still i wouldn't say high but it's actually low um <laughs> ph is a, you know a little low so it's a little acidic and so if you look at the bicarb and it's still low and it's not above a 20 then or 18 i think is the technical depends on the look at your lab values <laughs> i think it's like 18 to 20 something like that but if it's still a little low that might mean you're still in an acidic situa- situation and so if you take the patient off the insulin drip and put them on like basal bolus uh, usually like in our hospital we use lantus um, which is like Giardians or something like that. And then we do sliding scale on Lispro uh, or Humalog or whatever you want to call it. And <laughs> um, so if you do that, you switch them off and you put them on a diet, sometimes they slip back into diabetic ketoacidosis because they're still acidic. And so the cells are still insulin resistant. And so the insulin you're putting in them isn't really being absorbed. And so the glucose isn't being absorbed. And so you, you, the patients could slip back into diabetic ketoacidosis. So just kind of keep an eye on that bicarb. Um, we haven't, I don't know, most of the patients, most patients just tend to, as the anion gap closes, the bicarb closes. So it's usually not an issue. Um, but anyway, uh, where was I going with this conversation? Um, um, so oh, knowing, the, knowing everything about your patients. Yeah. yeah. So in those situations, you might have to know, like, how you know, what the blood sugar was when they came in, um, and then when they switched off. And then, of course, um, I mean, this is, some of this stuff is pretty menial, so maybe this is not the best example. Like, you know, obviously when they, the anion gap is closed, you put them on basal bolus, and then you start them on a diet. And so you want to make sure they have good PO intake or diet. They got to eat. They got to keep doing, you know, the normal functions and before you can send them home. So... Karen is staring at me as if I'm got two heads or something. No, so he lucked out this week because he doesn't have to. I don't have to recap all my six, all six of my patients. But he will next week because next week his. But I'll get the same guy as last. So the difference is that this attending that's coming on is a little bit more anxious, is what I was told. Like she's very. Um, uh, I don't know. It was in, I was I, I, I was talking to one of the transitional students who's had this particular attending. And I had her, you know, when I first started this rotation, I had her for one day. And this is the attending that basically told me when I tried to present, this is your first day, we'll work on it next week. Like, you know, like basically like your presentation stinks. You don't know how to pre- present. <laughs> we'll deal with it next week. Um, so... She's a little blunt um, and straight and to the point. So, and apparently she'll ask a lot of questions, which um, to be fair, I'm hoping I can be more prepared because it's similar to how neurology went with Dr. Bachelor, because Dr. Bachelor would stop me and ask me questions. And finally, after like day three, he was like, look, when you're presenting, you need to include a little bit more information because 
I want I have suddenly a running list of questions in my head as you're presenting and you might be getting to them later but that list starts getting longer and longer and I may not remember all the questions and so I start just asking questions and that stops your presentation and if you if you just start answering some of the questions or you know anticipating some of the questions I might ask this will go a lot better uh, and it was it, and maybe not exactly how he said it it was it was in a nice way it was uh, it was a good constructive criticism and I mean, some of the th very, let's use an example. And this partic very particular example is like, when you talk about a patient on AFib, like a lot of times you'll do like chief complaint, patient came in, um, I don't know, this is neurology. So let's say a patient came in with a altered mental status and um, headache. And, patient, and usually that's like, okay, patient came into the hospital, altered mental status and headache. And then usually your next line is going to be the past medical history because you're going to talk more about what happened when the patient came into the hospital and what they did, but right there and then you, you just want to know what, what else is going on with the patient that we should be aware of. So like a lot of times I go, okay, patient has a past medical history of previous stroke, um, heart failure, uh, AFib. Well, in the neurology world, <laughs> if you're thinking... If I'm being consulted, we care about brains and strokes and seizures, and those are the kind of the bread and butter of inpatient neurology. And you know a patient's coming of altered mental status, has a history of a stroke, and has AFib. Immediately your questions are, is the patient on uh, antiplatelet therapy? Um, so Eliquis. Um, not, oh, that's right, Eliquis is an anticoag. Antiplatelet therapy would be Plavix. So when you're presenting, you should mention if the patient's on an anticoag. So like you can say, oh, patient's past medical history is congestive heart failure, previous CVA in 2016 of the right MCA, and AFib currently on Eliquis. So then those questions are gone. You've answered them, and you've also kind of given a little bit of a better picture Especially, and, or if your patient hasn't taken Eloquist, just say, prescribed Eloquist, not compliant. That also, that paints a very different picture. You can go down different, different roads at that point because now in the patient who had been taking Eloquist and has AFib but still threw a clot and caused a stroke, now you're looking at um, resistant, you know, clotting that's resistant to yeah, anticoag, and now you might going down, okay, is this a hypercoagulable state? Is this, um, you know, is this, should we be looking at autoimmune diseases? Should we be looking at other things? And so you might run a whole different le level of tests on the patient. Whereas if it's like, hey, patient stopped taking their Eliquis and they have AFib, you know what the treatment option, what the treatment is? Start taking your Eliquis. Like, <laughs> it's, a, it's a very straightforward. <laughs> I mean, uh, uh, to be fair, that, that's even what Dr. Bachelor would say. Is like, you know, when it gets to that point, like if they haven't been taking the treatment, the treatment is take a treatment. <laughs> it's not. It's not anything special. It's start, do what we tell you to do, and then you won't have this problem. Um, well, hopefully, you won't have a recurrence of this problem. <laughs> <laughs> or, like in that case, you find them a cheaper medication if that's what's holding them up. Uh, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of different things. Like, because you can. I, I think we had one patient that uh, was alcoholic, and uh, we wanted to get him started on some kind of. Um, anti-coag and in the hospital a lot of times we like to go to the DOAC or the I forget the acronym it's basically Eliquis 
Um, but you can do other ones like I think Belinta and um, Wolf, uh, what's the, it's such an X, uh, Zeralto. Mm-hmm. So you can use those ones as well. And a lot of times in the hospital, it seems like it's kind of the go-to. Like if you're not going to keep the patient on the floor for a long time, like if you are, then heparin and Lovidox are great, great drugs to use. Um, but if you're like, eh, the patient's going to go home soon and I'm not really concerned about <laughs> bleeding issues because, you know, you can reverse Eliquis, you can reverse, sorry, you can reverse Lovinox and heparin. Eliquis is hard to reverse or very expensive. Um, it seems like a lot of times the hospital likes to use the Eliquis and they like to use the Balinta and they like to use the Zeralto. And I, I'm not really even 100% sure Balinta should be on that list, to be honest. Uh, so don't take my word on that one. But <laughs> uh, I know Belinda is used for heart failure because I have a patient that's using it for heart failure. But I, for some reason, I can't think of it being used in AFib. So just I'm tr- going to kind of correct that. I'm not really sure off the top of my head, Belinda. But I know Zeralto and Eloquist are kind of the go-to. And even in there, there's a, a raging debate depending on the cardiologist you talk to. <laughs> it seems like Eloquist is more predominantly... Pr- prescribed or at least when I worked in the pharmacy so, it was more predominant eloquist and for those that um needed a cheaper drug warfarin yeah and so there's yeah war- warfarin is so there's the there's all you know, warfarin is a great uh, example of an anti-coag that's cheap I mean it's, it's, <laughs> been, around for, it's been around for a long time it's a, and the benefit of it is that it's um well known like all the side effects are all pretty well known and I mean there's plentiful i went i was looking at a patient we, we have one who had like a super therapeutic inr so he was he was on warfarin and i'm not sure what happened it was drug drug interactions or because he was supposedly getting that managed and monitored but it's just like his inr was like three point something like it was high um but i went and looking to see like oh what's the what's what is uh warfarin like what kind of I know and I know medical school we talk about it is like the CYP three P four sub fifty something like that. It's like this enzyme in the liver that is used to break down drugs or metabolize drugs and depends on how the drug metabolizes. Like if if it metabolizes and then becomes active or it metabolizes and becomes inactive, and there are certain drugs that induce and certain ones that uh, inhibit. And so depending on the drug you take with, like warfarin, I think, needs it to metabolize or something, like to become active, or it metabolizes warfarin. But anyway, so like if you take one that induces this drug, uh, the, the CYP450, then warfarin will be at l- below therapeutic levels. But if you take one that I think inhibits it, then suddenly warfarin becomes like super therapeutic. And... I was looking around like, oh, this guy's got a pretty good med list. Let me look around and see what drug could be responsible. And like, there was a ton of drugs <laughs> that can. So, warfarin, while it does have like a, we we know very well, you know how this drug works and what 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 you can and cannot take with it. It's is a pretty ex- extensive list of uh, medications that you need to be cautious about with warfarin. But also, you can w- reverse warfarin. Like, if you need to reverse warfarin, there are ways to do it, vitamin K being one. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's different. Cause, uh, uh, and I'm not going to really get into the, the, the clotting 
pathways, the intrinsic versus extrinsic, because, well, I think that's probably going to be a board question here or there. Like, you know, where does Heffron act on what does, like, it's like Thrombin 3. Um, <laughs> like, where does uh, Zeralto and Eliquis act on? And it's like, I don't know off the top of my head, but I know they work on like a plotting factor down the line, whereas Wefarin works way up the line. It works on basically the before any clotting factors even made, it works on that. Um, like epoxide oxidase or something like that, something like that, and warfarin inhibits that, and it, that enzyme needs vitamin K in order to to work, in order to make clotting factors, and so in order to reverse warfarin, you got to give a lot of vitamin K, but I guess the pro tip on that is uh, it takes about 24 hours for vitamin K to have any sort of effect, so... Um, if you have a patient who's bleeding and you have a very super, uh, super therapeutic INR, uh, vitamin K is not going to solve your problems. <laughs> vitamin K is not going to get the patient clotting factors that he need, they need. Um, th again, this is not really my patient per se, because I, I do have a patient that has that, but that's not, I, I had a patient that has had that, but like, that's not he doesn't have that problem. It is a different problem. <laughs> <laughs> um, but that's just kind of a more of an academic, like, just remember, like, that's a good answer. Like vitamin K, when your senior goes to you and I and goes, okay, well, if the INR is this level and you need to get it below a one, um, and the bleeding, what do you do? And if you answer vitamin K, well, that is, uh, you now know your pathway and you can, you have demonstrated that you understand the pathway and how it works. They're going to say, that's great, but that will fix the problem in 24 hours. That will not fix the problem today. So the answer is fresh frozen plasma. <laughs> <laughs> fresh frozen plasma does everything. Uh, we were laughing about it because Eric and I, like the previous night before he got asked this question, we we're talking about because it, it's pretty common. Well, yeah, we were yeah. talking about all of this and how like the people, uh, residents in the homes that you you guys serviced would have like super therapeutic um, INRs, and then they would get given vitamin K, and then and fa the family, family would members would be like, "What? Bill. Why is this so? Why do I have this giant like, expensive, expensive thing?" <laughs> and then you would have like, "Well, I don't know because I'm not a pharmacist." So <laughs> I can't tell you. I can't tell you. <laughs> but you can Google. You can Google why someone might need vitamin K. <laughs> but um, realistically speaking, I think most doctors prescribe Eliquis or one of those other name brand medications over Warfarin because it is less work for the patient and for them. Because with Warfarin, you have to do your... Blood draws. I don't remember how how often. I don't know how often, but it's um, it almost seemed like weekly, almost, and uh, sometimes more. Frequent. Yeah, I think it just depends on the patient. But like the the pharmacy will not give you your medications until you have had your blood draws, so that they know that they are giving you the correct dosage. Yeah, and so, so my understanding is it's like for the first few weeks or months that you're on it, you're getting it checked pretty frequently, and because you're always adjusting to find the right. The right level of your INR. They want your INR in that sweet spot, and I, and I can't for the life of me. T I can't tell. I think it's like between two and three or something like. That. I could be dead wrong, but yeah. But for, <laughs> but for those of you that are listening <laughs> and are like, why don't we just prescribe the cheaper drug for our patients? That's better for them. It, it, it just is for patients who maybe don't have reliable transportation or have, struggle with compliance. Um, 
it's not, and it's a, it's a, it's a horrible juggle because like, okay, you have these patients who they're not very compliant or they don't have, they're not very reliable. They may not make their appointments. Like Wolfarin might be a great drug for them as far as expense wise. Cause maybe they have lower uh, social economic status and they can't really afford uh, the expensive drugs. They don't have insurance or something like that. Cause Eliquis and um, Zeraltro are relatively expensive if you don't have insurance. So like, you want to give, give your patients something that they can afford, but well, if they can't make the appointments, then what's the point? I mean, you're doing the best you can for your patients. So you obviously have to talk to them and work with them and see what they are willing to do. Uh, so I, I guess the underlying thing is don't always just presume to know how your patients are going to behave, but, um, but also look at the history, you know, the patient's been in the 12 times in a year. Well, for the same reason, then maybe they have an issue of compliance on certain things. Um, so, like, then you go, okay, well, Farron's maybe not the greatest plan for certain patients because um, they're not going to make those appointments. So um, let me put them on Eliquis or Zeralto. And this is where there's, a, I think, a mini debate. Uh, this also is another question. Like, if your patient doesn't always remember to take pills, well, you might then go to Zeralto because Zeralto is a once-a-day medication. You take it once, and that's it. <laughs> you only take it once a day. Um, whereas uh, Eliquis is typically a twice a day medication. Um, and now there's, there lies the debate. I mean, uh, there will, I, I worked with a electrophysiologist, Dr. Poku, who was very much adamant on Eliquis. And he's got, he's, he's a well-researched guy. I would actually, I, the way he explained it, I'm actually very convinced by. Uh, <laughs> but, um, and even he, but even he would say like the issue would be, also, like if they don't take it twice a day, then you might as well give them Zeralto because if they only take it once a day, at least that's something. Whereas if they can take it twice a day, Eliquis is better. Um, I'm not paid by <laughs> the drug <laughs> company or anything like that. But his rationale was because uh, like when you administer a drug, it enters your system and it stays in your system for a certain amount of time. It has a certain half-life and a certain therapeutic range it has to get into. This is all the pharmacokinetics that we learned in like third term <laughs> this is where it finally actually pays off a little um so Zeralto is a twice a day drug so you need to take it you know Eliquis is twice a day Eliquis yeah thank you Eliquis is twice thank you uh Eliquis is twice a day so you take it in the morning it gets the therapeutic range and then you take it in the afternoon or in the evening and there's your second bump you you basically it lasts long enough it stays in the therapeutic range the entire day if you take it twice a day Whereas Zeralto is like, it stays in the therapeutic range for, I think, the way it was explained to me is like 23 hours. So there is an hour of the day where it is not in the therapeutic range. And you take it again and you're back in the therapeutic range. So that's, that was essentially the, the thought process is like, the, uh, Zeralto does a decent, it's a pretty good job. Um, and every patient's a little bit different. Like there are some patients that the drug will stay in the system maybe a bit longer, and then some patients a little bit shorter. So um, that's true for Eliquis and Zeralto. That's true for all medications uh, to some to some degree. Like our biology is different. Our genetics are all a little bit different. So this is the the bell curve, <laughs> if you will. <laughs> um, you know, when you take a study, you do the bell curve, and like okay, ninety five percent of the patients are within two standard deviations um, of the mean. And so you know, that's what we're going to go with. And if you are outside the bell curve, you are in the 
you know, if you're above, you're in the 2.5%, and you're below, you're in the 2.5% below. So, anywho, <laughs> it's a... It's we a, veered off topic, but yeah, <laughs> I think but it's a good, it's a good, good topic. And it, quite frankly, when Eric comes home and he's talking about some of these medications, it's kind of nice that I know a little bit, having worked at the pharmacy for a few years, because um, we can have those conversations. And it's kind of fun that I understand something of what he's doing. Because <laughs> some yeah. days he'll come home and I'll be like, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> but I'm going to listen <laughs> to you. There's plenty of these I come home process. I still know. But. <laughs> <laughs> but it is fun. So like Eric, Eric will have his bad days and Eric is a verbal processor. So he'll come home and then he'll talk through each and every patient. And By like, the end I don't, of the day, I, don't, I have a better idea of what's going on. Yeah, I don't get names or anything, but I, and quite frankly, sometimes like, he jumps from patient to patient, so I'm not sure if... There's no HIPAA violations <laughs> yeah. going on here. Yeah, but it is interesting to see like how he works out certain things, and then like sometimes we'll be laying in bed, and he's like, oh, I should order this test. <laughs> it was just like... Yeah, and sometimes it doesn't... You like, never stop a, thinking. There's a little bit of epiphanies here and there. Um or maybe I should consult this person or, um, yeah, there's definitely times when I, I don't know, it's hard because you start the day off and for me, I, I start off immediately anxious. Like I am getting either new patients or I am trying to figure out what the heck is going on with one patient. And, and I spend an exorbitant amount of time trying to read up on the patient. And if something has confused me, I try to read up on like, what it is so i'm a little less confused because like i this is again this is that step from fourth year medical student to intern where you are the doctor you are <laughs> going to walk into that room and you can't just do your physical exam to ask your questions and then leave you actually do have to interact with the patient a little bit more answer their questions try to give them an idea of what's going to happen to, in the day. Like, what's your plan? What's your assessment? What are you thinking? And then, of course, like, you got to go, what are you thinking, Mr. Patient? <laughs> you know, what do you, how do you feel about everything? What are, you, what are your questions? What are your concerns? And try to answer all that. And then sometimes you, you get stumped and you have to say that to the patient. Like, I, I just don't know. I, you know, sometimes, like, I'm going to have to talk to the team about some of that because I, I just don't know the, the right answer to that question. So... I generally start my day off incredibly anxious because I'm trying to figure out everything about these patients and um, pouring over the medical record and still doing a very terrible job presenting my patients uh, to the team during rounds. And, uh, and again, some patients are just like, I'm just completely lost on. Like, I don't know what's going on. <laughs> like, like the guy walked in with this condition and now he's got something completely seemingly unrelated. I don't understand. Like, what are we even doing with this guy besides like managing blood pressure and trying to keep him from like ripping out his lines? Like, uh, is, is there something else we're supposed to be doing? And <laughs> so like that stuff really still confuses me. Um, and usually by the end of the day, I have a better grip on what's going on, but I spend, I don't know. It's, it's a lot of time just on some of those patients, you kind of get stuck in a trance. Like you, you're like you've done your presentation, you've, uh, you're doing your orders. So you're just putting in on all your orders. And then sometimes you're just like, I don't know why I'm doing this. 
why am I doing this? Why am I putting this order in? And then you try to go down that rabbit hole and you're trying to figure out an answer to a question you don't know. And before you know it, you've wasted like two hours down this rabbit hole and you're like, oh my God, I got to get notes done. Uh, <laughs> because we're going to do, um, we're going to run the list here in a little bit and I, I got nothing. Um, so sometimes it's, I don't know, it's a, life as an intern is interesting. Some interns do it better than others, so I'm not doing it the best. Um, <laughs> it's hard because like, I think every intern thinks that they are the worst, though. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think that you're not wrong. So there's like there's the intellectual and there's like how you actually feel. No, I know. Because uh, like I, I have talked to other interns and just like I just. I just want to not suck. And they're like, I'm with you. I don't want to suck either. And I'm still, but I still suck. And it's like, okay, good. We're in the same boat. And like, and the, a lot of the same mantra is like, I just want to be in the middle of the pack and not be in the back. Like, I don't want to be the suckiest intern there is. Like, I want to be in the middle. Like, it would be great to be in the front, but like, let's set our, let's set the goal the bar are obtainable at this moment. Like we can, let's get to the middle first and then we can talk about you trying to get to the front. Um, but I think a lot of the interns feel that way. And like, there are some people who have like these amazing strengths. Um, some interns who, uh, like Tark, <laughs> who has been attending for at least a year or so, um, they have a little bit more, better of an edge on you, but, probably better not to compare yourself to somebody who's uh, been practicing for a little bit. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's, it's hard because like intellectually, you know, like every intern is going through the same issue. I talked to another guy in my intern class and he's talking, he's on like, he was on like two South and it's not as hard as eight South. I mean, you, you might get a few more patients uh, assigned to you, but theoretically you're not, your patients aren't going to be as sick supposedly. And so you would think it wouldn't be all that hard, but he was still spending those seven o'clock at night, doing eight o'clock at night, doing his notes and then, you know, going home and <laughs> trying to find some time with his family. And that's tough for him. And so it's like, okay, well, if he's struggling and I'm struggling, I mean, everyone, and this transition student that I was sitting next to, like I was sitting next to until seven o'clock too. So like we all, are struggling <laughs> and it's hard because like the seniors knock out their notes and they're like peace and they leave and the interns are just like oh I mean they, they ask us like anything we can do for you and it's if I knew I would tell you <laughs> but I don't even know what I need <laughs> like I need to do notes I I think I have all my orders in but I don't know like but that's also all part of the the process right like you you do your note and sometimes as you're doing, you know, it. I, mean, I do my morning labs at night. So I, I put in my morning labs right before I leave because basically I figure as I'm doing my note, I'm sometimes unearthing things that I forgot about. Like, oh, yeah, he did mention this thing. Uh, it's not, you know, it's not really crucial, but it's something I'm keeping an eye on. It's not like pivotal to his, what we're currently working on. Like we're really only mainly concerned about his DKA, but I'm kind of curious about this. So I'm going to kind of keep that and, you know, or I don't know, people don't believe me about possible infection. So I'm not just going to order a CBC. I'm going to order a CBC with diff because <laughs> <laughs> differential will tell me left shift or not. 
and that will be helpful. Yeah, so let's talk about orders that you put in at night because we had just talked about this earlier this evening where night things that are helpful to the night shift and that you might not think of. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> not only are you trying to set yourself up for success the next day because like the worst thing is, and it's happened already this last week, where you come in and you go look at your patient and there's no labs. And you're like, crap, did I not put labs in? You look at the orders and you're like, nope, didn't put any lab orders in. And then you try to do that real quick and hope that the nurses see it sometime soon with the next hour or two before you have to present and you actually have some lab values that you can, <laughs> you don't always need labs for your patients, but as a rule of thumb, it's good to have something. If your sick patient is sick, you'll probably need to look at something. Uh, <laughs> Uh, lab-wise, something empirical, objective to some degree that is, you know, up to interpretation. But so not only are you trying to set yourself up for success, you're also trying to make the night shift's life a little bit easier because, like, okay, I, on my 8-South on my team, I'm between 5 and 6 patients is usually what's assigned to me. And on the team, there's, like, 16 to 18 patients. So... Uh, the night nighttime person is covering everybody. Well, it's covering and, all eighteen of those patients. <laughs> and two, you're not only just making it easier for the nighttime um, resident; you're also making it easier for the nighttime nurses. That too. I, I mean, the best example, the clearest example in my mind is when you have a patient like they are a heavy drinker. They came into the hospital, and the last known drink was maybe twenty four hours ago, maybe. 48 hours ago and they're starting to show some agitation like some like tachycardia they're starting to pace around a little bit and you're starting to in the back of your head and maybe even in your note you're like hmm, maybe alcohol withdrawal okay put in the prn order <laughs> for ativan because when that patient goes crazy at night uh, that's not the, probably the politically correct word, but when they start <laughs> getting a little bit agitated and start pulling out lines and causing problems for the nurses, the nurses would very much love to be able to give that patient out of van or something similar to calm them down so they stop tearing lines out and causing problems. But if you didn't put the order in, they have to contact the on-call person who may or may not be readily available. And in that time frame, they're just trying to deal with a patient who's going a little, you know, a little unmanageable and they're waiting for you to put in an order to give them out of van. Whereas you, if the day shift would have done their job, they would have just done it. They would have just looked at the PRN and like, I have PRN out of van done. And it's the same with uh, your diabetic patients. Sometimes they dropped their blood sugar super low and the nurses check in and it's like 40 and they're like, Oh my gosh, there's a critical lab. You know, if you have PRN glucose or like, hey, just give them some orange juice and retest it, like, they'll do that. Whereas if you don't have any orders in there, they're a page of the night person. <laughs> and the night person will have to, uh, they have like 15 to 20 patients that the night person is keeping tabs on. They don't know. And some of them, are, a lot of the night people right now are interns. So, like, <laughs> just as terrified as I am. And, like, you had to pour over the chart 
really quickly. You get handoff, but like, you know, you don't really know all your patients that well. So you, you're pulling over the chart and trying to figure out like, what can I give this person? And so they have to figure it out. And it's just nice. It's nice to unite people to have things ready to go. And that's also why also handoff is relatively important. If you can tell the person like, hey, by the way, this patient tends to, is hypertensive and we've been trying to get this hypertension under control, but it's like drops into the hundred low, you know, low hundreds, shoots up to 190. You know, we are trying to control the blood pressure, but like, hey, if this, he's on a nicardipine drip or a nicardian drip, um, like just crank that up a little bit, push it up. You know, if they go hypertensive, push that up a little bit. Like that, that would be helpful, helpful information. So things that you can do for the night team, that's another thing you're doing at the end of your shift as well. So a lot of, sometimes some of this stuff is all part of the protocol and order sets that you um, build. So oftentimes if you do admit a patient who has diabetes, you're run a diabetic order set and you set the, the Lantus dose and then the sliding scale and then the rest of the order is like it will include glucagon, it will include glucose chewable tablets, it will include all this other stuff that is helpful and necessary unless you've accidentally discontinued it. So <laughs> it's a lot. I mean, it's, it's things that you should consider. But I think there's also another consideration that one of my seniors had mentioned, and it's worth mentioning. It's like some patients you have to be careful with because of uh, – like, it's great to give a PRN order for Ativan. That might be nice. But sometimes you have to be cautious and protective of your patients because sometimes, um, I don't know how to say this delicately, uh, <laughs> sometimes people who work on the floors would just like a nice, peaceful evening, and they will just snow out. The term is snow out your patient. So they'll just go ahead and give them stuff at the first sign of trouble before the patient's even really trouble and just to knock the patient's ass out. <laughs> That's a little horrible. <laughs> uh, and so don't, oh, don't just put it on there just to put it on there. Like have a good reason to have it out there. Um, so I don't know. That's just something they kind of keep in mind. Just like sometimes, like, sometimes the nurses in the night are taking care of multiple patients and they don't really want to deal with like, Four of their patients having issues and running labs and doing all these other things that they're supposed to be doing. They just want to have a chill night. And so sometimes they might, I'm not saying all nurses, I'm not, I'm certainly not saying any particular floor does this. And I'm certainly, I certainly haven't experienced this myself. This was just something that my senior had passed on to me is like, if there's a great reason to do it, do it. If there's not, don't do it. Or the nurses might just knock out your patient at night and that's not great. And of course, like with Ativan, it's a benzo, diazepine. Um, older patients are always the best candidates for that drug. Like maybe, uh, this is actually one I, I learned as well. Olanzapine is a second generation antipsychotic. Apparently, that is very popular as an anti-agitation drug. Yep. Um, I, I feel like I should have known this already, but <laughs> maybe I did. But... Uh, um, yeah, I was a little surprised. Like, yeah, we'll, we'll use this one instead. Um, so that was interesting. You know, yeah, that's, that's prescribed a lot. Interesting. I mean, I know it's like prescribed for people who have, have 
psychotic episode, schizophrenia and stuff like that. But I, I didn't realize it was a it's it's like a agitation in the yeah yep oh fun saw that one a lot <laughs> <laughs> interesting uh, yeah but, no so I don't know I feel like you're you're learning a lot about medicine but you're also learning a lot about just. Being being a doctor, like how how to make the flow go well. Yeah, a lot of the difficulty right now is knowing how to do different functions. Like every hospital is going to have a different way of how you do things. Like if you need to order a consult, some hospitals you just put in the order and the consult will magically happen. Uh, in this hospital, you do need to reach out to the people you are consulting. Apparently, I heard that there is a discrepancy with like GI and a few other places. Uh, EP, you can't directly consult. Uh, <laughs> they, they are a subspecialty of a special subspecialty, and my senior said they feel like only the cardiologist should be allowed to consult them. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, Okay. Uh, but then again, I did see a note today because I was on, I, w- I was still looped in on a note, and um, and the cardiologist was like, uh, "Go ahead and con- consult EP," and <laughs> I just forwarded the message. I, I'm not on today, so I just forwarded it on to the the senior. I was like, well, "You can deal with this." Like, forward it on. I'm not on today. Like, I, I it, it would be almost impossible for me to figure out who was the the on call person from home. Not totally impossible, just. It wouldn't be beneficial to whoever's like whoever, someone else is managing that patient today. It would not be beneficial to them to have me from home trying to figure that out. No, and we have drawn the line in the past, and will continue to draw the line. <laughs> <laughs> I will just comment that I just got the message. I looked at it, and I noticed that none of my other team, no one else on the team, was on the message. He's and already so getting defensive. <laughs> it was in the best interest of everyone, including myself, if I get this patient back. That, Things would progress <laughs> in the correct direction and not be held up because, oh, Eric didn't forward his chat. No, I'm not upset about you forwarding the <laughs> <Okay>. chat. <laughs> what I was going to say is in the past when Eric was working for the last the clinic that he worked for, uh, he seemed to be the point person for all of the doctors. And I remember a few times where... A few date nights. A few date nights where, like, we had found a babysitter. We were actually going out, and he spent half the date night on the phone trying to manage contacting the hospital and um, the PA and trying to get everything worked out so they can get this person in for surgery. Keep surgery as planned. And me just sitting there being like, you're not getting paid for this. It is our date night. What are you doing? (laughs) Well, I had a good manager that asked me how long I spent on it, and she added it to my time clock. But still. But still, (laughs) we we did end up having a conversation. And it is something that we had talked about. So this is also something um, like some, I don't know if it's encouraged or whatnot, but some of the doctors that Eric used to work with would have an office at home where they could go home and finish their notes at home. Mm -hmm. And like Eric and I have had this conversation when Eric gets home, he's home. We're, we're putting for the most part, unless something is urgent or if something needs to get forwarded on or whatnot, like residency is still young. I mean, I think this is a good 
rule that we're going to try. You go ahead and finish the rule. <laughs> go ahead. <laughs> I'm just prefacing it right off the bat. Like we are like a month into residency. No, no, no. And I know residency might be a little bit different, but like when Eric has his own practice or is working with a team, like when he's home, that is family time. That is, that is protected time versus uh, barring any emergency. Right. <laughs> but like do your work at the hospital, even if you have the option of coming home and doing notes, like you're not actually home because you're, you're clothing yourself into an office and doing notes. It might be more comfortable for you, but like the kids want to see you. And so, and I would like to see you. And so it actually makes it hard, harder, especially with the kids, kids being the age they are now. Like if dad's home, they want to hang out with dad. And so I know Eric was supposed to work on some like training things today and that didn't get done. <laughs> oh yeah. That, that was something on my list of stuff to do today, but okay. So it might be something I have to do later this week. Oh, I'm sure it is. Um, but I think our general rule of thumb is like you do your work in the office and then you come home. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's probably a good way to start. And I think try to, that's the ideal to, to go with. Uh, I, I have heard of some residents that have decided to go home, eat dinner with their family and then hole away to, you know, hide away in the office and finish their notes there. Uh, basically because they would like to at least have dinner with their family and say, you know, put their kids to bed or whatnot. And I can, I can at least appreciate that. Like, um, I think the gen generally that's a hard, that's a hard, that, I don't know, the, the program does not necessarily encourage that kind of behavior. Uh, <laughs> they've actively told us that we should finish our notes while we're on shift. Um, and I think there's a, there's pros and cons of that, but I mean, obviously the pro would be is, the sooner you get your note in, the sooner everyone else around knows what the plan is. So, like, you could have done a really good handoff, but, like, your note is really going to be the most definitive, you know, plan for what the patient is going to have done. Um, and especially if any consultants come through and anyone else is coming through, they got to see, they need to see what you're doing, what the plan is for the patient. Nurses might need to see that, too, to kind of an idea. I've, I've had... Surprisingly, nurses that have looked at my notes and um, mentioned inaccuracies. And, <laughs> <laughs> yep, we're going to fix that right away. <laughs> like, uh, I can't even remember what she, I think she, it was. It wasn't anything, like, amazing, but she just, like, mentioned, like, oh, you know, it says we're going to do this, but it looks like we did this. And I'm like, that's right. Uh, what we're doing is correct. I'll, I'll adjust the note. Like, yeah, we were going to do that, and something changed. Uh, <laughs> So, um, yeah, things to think about. People do read your notes, apparently. And which actually brings up the second point here. And, and not second, but the next, uh, we, don't have, we don't want to go too much longer, but the next thing is notes. And um, I've been, I don't, know, again, I don't know if this is the best way to operate. And I'm sure when I'm a third year, I will have a different mentality. But my current mentality as far as note taking goes okay i'll put it down <laughs> um i've been playing with something that karen doesn't like me doing it um my current mentality with notes is that and this is something my attending told me like when you're doing your assessment and plan you really got to talk about your differential diagnoses like you're, you're starting off broad on a, a few patients because you don't always know right off the bat 
what the actual diagnosis is. You start kind of broad and then you narrow it down. Um, so you start broad and you have your differentials underneath that umbrella, essentially, and that you need to talk about your differentials. You need to say, name them and then talk them through. And his point was, uh, what he told me anyway, was you do that, that writing it out will help you reinforce it. So next time you see a patient with this presentation, you will immediately recall, hopefully if you've written it a few times, you will immediately recall all these differentials. As opposed to if you never write it out, sometimes it's hard to come up with a bunch of differentials on the fly. If you've never written it out, if you've never really tried to memorize the ones that you should really think about when this one present, like, for example, um, acute encephalopathy. You know, it's a very vague, it's just almost as vague as altered mental status. Um, Patients seems to have an issue with the brain. (laughs) It <laughs> causes them to not be at baseline, act not like themselves. It's kind of the catch-all, like in acute encephalopathy. So what is causing acute encephalopathy? Is it hospital delirium? A very real thing. Is it an underlying infection causing a metabolic imbalance? Is it a toxic shock? Syn- uh, uh, shock liver, you know, uh, hep- say hepatic encephalopathy because of a shock liver? Is it um, something wrong with the brain? Is it, was, it, was the patient have a stroke? Uh, was it hypoxic brain injury due to a heart attack? Like, you, these are your differentials you're trying to build off of. And so with the note, he said, in your assessment plan, when you start with a, an acute encephalopathy, you add all those differentials underneath of it, so, and then you start talking about them. You know, why, which one's your leading one? What are you, why are you considering them? And then you write your plan. You know, what are you going to do? Get an MRI. We're going to rule out intracranial processes. And that might also rule out press syndrome as well. Um, I got pneumonia to try to, and other things to look at liver functions and uh, you know, other stuff like that. You look at, you, you, you basically make your plan based off of your differentials. And so if you get in the habit of doing that, you, you're showing people, at, for me, as an intern, <laughs> I'm an intern. I'm first year medical student. The level of trust that people have in my abilities is low and probably rightly so. Um, they need to see what my thought process is. Or my attendings need to see what my thought process is so they can teach me and guide me in the correct directions. I am almost 100% certain my seniors do not do this. Uh, I'm almost 100%. Well, they don't need to anymore. They've gotten to the point where they have acute cephalopathy. Here's the plan. They maybe do a few blurbs like why they think it's acute encephalopathy and what they're, what they're leaning towards or something like that. But they, they're not making the note very long because the, the plan is really what's important. And what you might be ordering might be a very telling of what you might be thinking. So, and anyway, it means I take a long time writing notes, <laughs> which is very frustrating because it's like I'm getting out at 7. That's when the handoff, the short call for our team is doing handoff to the night team. And it's like I might as well just have stayed and done handoff. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> which he will do tomorrow. Yeah, I do that tomorrow. I'm dreading that. <laughs> oh, because I have to take handoff from all my other teammates and then somehow try to regurgitate that onto the uh the night person and not sound like a complete imbecile. So we'll see how that goes. Anywho. um, This is probably a good stopping point. We've probably talked too long as it is. It's a 55 minutes almost. (laughs) So, But thanks for listening. (laughs) Again, if you ever have any questions or 
thoughts, please uh, message us through Instagram. Um, we'll either make it on an episode or we will shoot off an answer to you as soon as we can. Um, normally, it is Eric answering those questions. Um, so it might take a little longer now than it used to. We do our best. We do our best. Um, our Instagram is MedFamilyMD. And um, yeah. Like and follow our podcast if you'd like and share if you want. Anyways, we'll see you guys or we will talk to you guys next week. Bye.